You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 54, The Warren Flu Debate. And uh, I have been looking forward to this for a while because I have my friend Brandon Renfro with me today. Say hi, Brandon. Hello, Brandon. <laughs> I, I felt like I was inviting that, that joke whenever I said that, but I'm glad, glad you're here to do this with me. And I'll get to why you're the only guy I would do this particular subject with in just a moment. But um, I want to say thanks for letting me come up to Rainsville, Alabama, uh, teetering precariously on the rim of the Little River Canyon here. Actually, we're kind of a little ways away from the canyon it's okay. at this point. If you want to think of it that way, if that adds intrigue well, to it, I'm, I'm okay with on it. On the way up, I imagined looking out your window at deep canyons and all right. Um, waterfalls and nature's beauty. Hey, whatever, turned, whatever, whatever works for you, buddy. I, I got off the highway and turned the opposite direction. <laughs> from the, uh, but uh, very nice of you to let me come up and take some time out of your schedule to do this. Um, you're right now. You're just so people know I, you're famous. So I really don't need to introduce you, but. You're working with the Fort Payne congregation That's right. right now as associate minister. That is correct. And uh, been there several months. Starting officially, you started as associate minister this year. Yeah, yeah. Early so about sometime. six, seven months you've been working with them. Sounds good. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> but uh, you've always worked with churches, and uh, I've been uh, so associating with you since you were in Asheville. In our area, yeah. even before that, really, when you were working in Trustville, and uh, we always try to have you out at Asheville Road, and you're coming this September, and uh, I wanted to mention your book. You had a book come out last year, Do You Know Your Jesus? And uh, aside from the foreword, it's a great book. Uh, <laughs> You can get it on Amazon. I want, I've told everybody nobody, that look, listens. Look, nobody cares about that book. Let's just we can yes, skip they it. do. No, I was even gonna maybe sing. Do you know your Jesus? Do you know my Jesus? As a as a way to introduce your book, but I do want people to get a copy of it because it's as I've said on this podcast before. It's a great book, and uh, Christians need to read it because it really exalts Jesus and puts him in the place where he should be as God in our hearts and gets very practical on some issues and you get you get the job done in a few pages and uh, you write it you have a great a very interesting style uh, a great way to communicate that thing so if you haven't read Brandon's book yet go on amazon.com pick up a copy it's an ebook format and in print and it's very affordable uh, so there's the plug you didn't do it I did it well, that you're very kind I appreciate that <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the Warren flu debate. Now, uh, the debate took place in 1976. We both brought our copies. Uh, I bought a used copy of it at Clyde Woods' booth at Free Darnham Lectures one year simply because I was there with my dad and we were browsing around Dr. Woods' book collection. And Dad saw this, and he said, you have to have that book. Do you have that book? I said, no. He said, it is essential that you have that book in your library. So I bought it at a low, low discount price from Dr. Woods and uh, read it thoroughly and was really encouraged by it um, and enjoyed reading it. And uh, the debate itself, as I said, took place in 1976. I have... Here in the preface to the book, September 20th through September 23rd, 1976 at North Texas State University in Denton, Texas, not far from where I was raised. Um, you and I are both too young to have been there, but a lot of folks in the Churches of Christ made pilgrimages to North Texas University to attend this debate. You know, it was a big deal. It was oh, well yeah. publicized. Debate of the century. That's how yeah. it was publicized. Yeah, and as far as our debates go within our brotherhood, it, that may be a good way to put it because I, I think it is the best known debate of the century. Although 
there were several in the early 20th century that you know are still very influential and that people talk about and and study but you know I'll talk about my experience with the debate and with the book and um, then maybe there's a few things you could share about how you came to to know about it sure uh, probably my biggest exposure to it aside from buying the book at the urging of my father is it's it was pretty much the unstated textbook for our Christian evidences class at Free Dartman University my instructor in that class was David Leip who was a student of Dr. Warren's and uh, he used the charts in here Dr. Warren was a very good artist oh right and, yeah he drew his own charts if I'm not mistaken yeah and they're included in this book and they're great you know his handwriting I I know that handwriting anywhere because I spent yeah. hours in school looking at those charts and studying them and um, you know just look fascinated by the way that he communicated and use it used those uh, charts in his debates and uh, there were other things we talked about and we didn't really just talk about the debate in fact I don't even know if the debate was mentioned in class but it was very clear that we use we were using Warren's material from this book and also from his book on the problem of suffering uh, I forget the title of that it's a small volume I don't have a copy of that but I've read it mm -hmm. is it God and evil maybe the problem of evil I'm not yeah it seems like it, it was a question the title of the book was a question or something like that but anyway it was about the problem of evil and that's been my exposure to the debate um, I also remember a story my dad told me he first learned about it uh, when he was an associate minister at a church the guy who he worked with who was his mentor bought a copy of the book and he says he remembers him bringing the copy and telling him about it brought it to the office and he just sat in his chair the whole day he just read the book from cover to cover and it is very interesting especially if you like debates to to read it uh, because they're really fighting for something important I mean the, it's over I don't guess we said this I said this it's over the question of the existence of God and the stakes could be higher than that those are some of my memories about the book and some of the things that influenced me about it um, how did you come to know about the debate and acquire a copy of the book. What's your relationship to this whole thing? Let's see, I was in preaching school um, in Texas in 2000, I guess it was 2001, 2001, 2002, mm -hmm. and it was assigned, I'm sure I had, had never even heard of it before, and it was assigned as part of well, one of our classes, I don't know if it was the Great Debates or what exactly, but I wasn't even familiar with who Brother Warren was. Um, but I had read, I would go on to read, I think he had, you know, Warren had debated for at least half a century, it yeah. seems like, or a quarter of a century, I think. I know in 1954, I think it was, he debated uh, Ballard on baptism, mm -hmm. and so I would go, and like I acquired all of his debate books, I think, after that. But this certainly is the, is the most famous. He had a wide uh, variety of subjects that he would debate. Right. Uh, I've got several of his other debate books as well. Uh, and so this was assigned when I was in preaching school, and I guess it was just at that time in my life, I mean, I just simply devoured the book. I, I thought it was incredible because flu, you have to remember, was perceived as, you know, the most prominent atheist in the world at that time. He would be, I guess, how people think of, of Richard Dawkins today, mm -hmm. that was Antony Flew then, Except, you know, he wasn't a jerk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Anthony Flew. But he was kind of a celebrity atheist, right? He was. He was. And uh, it's like Flew said earlier in the debate, he said, you can't help but like him. You know, Flew was self-deprecating. He was, you know, modest, humble. Both of these men had been in the military. Um, Flew had served in the Royal Air Force. And I'm not sure what branch of the service Brother Warren was in, but I know they were both military men because Warren, one of the arguments he uses in the debate is did the Nazis commit real objective moral evil when they murdered six million Jewish men, women, and children? 
and mm-hmm. Antony Flew fought in, in that war. I mean, Ant- Antony Flew can't get up and say, well, no, it was just a matter of opinion. And so mm-hmm. Warren used their common experience effectively to press home that point. There is real objective moral evil, and that objective standard points to God. Mm-hmm. And Flew never really could answer that. Um, fascinating to me was that, you know, Flew goes into that debate, and, and he had had other debates before, and so Flew comes with manuscripts. You know, Flew comes and he shows up, and he's basically just going to read what he's prepared beforehand. And he never really veered from that. You know, if it you, wasn't very responsive, right? He didn't right. respond yeah. to Doctor Warren. I, every time I think think about this debate, looking back on it, I just think he flew, uh, ran into a buzzsaw. He had no idea. You know, he had debated religionists before who were. Uh, I don't know if you know the Pentecostal type, perhaps, or he was used to having people just explain things away with, "Well, that that's a miracle," or you know, some some better felt than told phenomena. He had mm-hmm. no idea the logician that he was about, because Brother Warren held a Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University, and I don't think he, I don't know if he just heard that Warren is affiliated with the Churches of Christ and and underestimated him. I, I kind of think he did mm-hmm. underestimate him. And he him. was going to, I think the fact that he's going to Denton, Texas, not to dismiss North Texas, but, you know, he wasn't going to Harvard right. University. Right. North Texas State University in North Central Texas you just get a, if you're from the UK, you get this feeling that this is going to be a cakewalk, right? And I think that is very much a part of this debate and what happened in the experience. Well, and Warren shows up, you know, when right out of the gate he he says, you know, hand me chart, you know, seventeen D yeah. or whatever it is, and you know, he, Warren has a, a suitcase full of charts and syllogisms and graphs, you know. And and flu didn't didn't know what hit him, you know. It, it's right. and he didn't deviate. You know, Brother Warren would make these arguments. He would set forth his syllogisms, and then flu would just go back and he would read his prepared statements. And he really wouldn't. If you watch this, you know, I read this debate, marked it with my highlighter, read it again, read it again, and then later found. I'm sure it was years later. It wasn't in 2001, but it's on YouTube now. You know. Yeah, I I've seen a few. And clips of it on YouTube. I tried to show it. I tried to show it once in a in a Bible class, and it <laughs> kind of it kind of bogs down because flu is really just saying the same things again yeah. and again. It's it's kind of painful. It, it it's one of those things. It really reads better than it watches. I would read it out loud and try to you know give the voices to them uh-huh. or, or whatever, but it really doesn't doesn't watch nearly as well. And when they when they recorded it, they didn't have access to the kinds of video equipment that you know an amateur even could have today. So I think it's a one-camera shot from way out, so they could get Thomas B. Warren's charts, oh, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with flu, it's just really, really dull delivery. He just he seemed like he didn't want to be there, um, and that he was ill prepared. Uh, Let's let's go over the debate just really quickly, and uh, basically I'm going to talk about what Warren said, because Flu, while he did contribute some things to it, it was what everybody studies, what I've studied and gained from this is Warren's side of the debate. Uh, I think if you were going to try to prepare yourself for what atheists teach, this is not the book to go to. <laughs> Probably you not. Know? Right. Um, so, but Warren used arguments that are still, I think, primary arguments for the existence of God today. And they're, they're simple. I remember going over them for the first time, as you did in school, and I was just, you know, mind blown by it. But nowadays, I look at it, and it's not, they're not the most sophisticated arguments that are out there right. today, but they're, they're the meat and potatoes of Christian evidences. And it wouldn't have been anything that Flew had never heard of before. There's no way. Right. But basically, he uses the cosmological argument for the existence of God, the teleological argument, which he spent more time on, and most effectively, the one that you've already referred to, the moral argument for the existence of God. And I believe I phrased them the way that he phrased them in the debate. 
correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think but that's right. Cosmological argument is the, you know, people simplify it as the law of cause and effect. That's not exactly what it is because uh, cause and effect does not necessarily have to have a first cause. Cause and effect just has to do with, you know, a snapshot of events. And you say, well, that effect has that cause, and then you don't bother with what caused the cause. But the cosmological argument says if there was ever a time when there was nothing, there would be nothing now. Why is there something? And um, he spent some time on that argument and then spent a great deal more time, as I recall, on the teleological argument, which is the argument from design. Saying, and I'm putting this in my own words, but you know, there, there's obviously intelligence behind this world because there is design and where there is design, there has to be a designer. And then, uh, and co- feel free to come back on any of these that you want to remark no, on. I'm, I'm just giving my anything. basic. I'm not going to say anything at all. <laughs> well, the moral, the moral argument, I think, you know, it's not that he spent more time on the moral argument. I just think he brought some unique things to it. And I was going to bring up the, the illustration that you already did with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. But the moral argument says there has to be an objective standard for morality for morality to exist and he illustrated that so effectively with the Nuremberg trials because the Nuremberg trials um, were the trials that tried the Nazis of war crimes uh, crimes against humanity and the Nazis had a pretty good defense from a relativistic point of view we govern ourselves we're a sovereign nation that governs ourselves by our own laws uh, we lived according to those laws. You do not have the right to try us uh, by any other law. And the the head justice, was his name Robert Jackson, something like it that? Was. He said, you know, we are trying you by a higher law that transcends the provincial, provincial and, the transient. and the transient. And that the world was okay with that argument. You know, back in the 1940s, the world said, yeah. There is a higher law. And because most people believed in God in those days, nobody said, hey, wait a minute. There is no God. There's no objective standard. Maybe the Nazis have a case. Everybody believed the Nazis were wrong. And as you pointed out, these men both fought on the same side of this war, so they weren't going to debate that point. And that was just a very effective argument. And I think it still is, although you have guys like Sam Harris who... And I still don't understand Sam Harris's way of arguing this. This would be something I need to investigate further. But, you know, Sam Harris tries to, he says we need morality, but we can have morality through evolution and science. We don't have to have God to have morality. And that's a very different, you know, I applaud him for trying and being honest. But it's, how do you, how do you come up with morality without, an absolute standard from right. heaven. You just you just can't. If I'm not mistaken, those were the three arguments that Dr. Warren stuck to. Uh, there may be some other stuff in there that I missed. Well, I think one of the things, like right out of the gate, um, that Warren tried that Flew wasn't anticipating was Warren framed, and even using the arguments that he did use, Warren framed this essentially... He talked about the law of the excluded middle, and he said, you know, things, something either is or it is not. And Warren framed the entire debate almost from his first speech as creation versus evolution, right? And by negating evolution, the only other option, if you have those two alternatives, to negate evolution is to affirm creation. And Flew seemed flabbergasted by it. You know, Warren lays out his his proposition, and he has like nine points that he goes through. Mm-hmm. It's either creation or it's evolution. If it's evolution, then an ape gave birth to some, a, a living human being, or some ape transformed into a mm-hmm. human being at some point. And if neither of those things happen, that is, if an ape didn't give birth to a human being or if an ape didn't transform into, then you don't have evolution. And if you don't have evolution, then by default you have creation. And that was a novel approach, I think, as far as 
Flew was concerned. It, it took him totally off guard, and he spends the rest of the debate, and he even admits, you know, I really, this is kind of a novel approach to me, and all that Flew can say is that even if, if um, Mr. Warren disproves evolution, I'm not sure that he proves creation. And, and Warren finally says to him, he says, I am astounded to have to speak to this man, one of the most learned scholars in the entire world. I'm astounded to have to speak to this man, this philosopher, about the law of the excluded middle. Mm-hmm. And, and Flew had to feel the, the force of that. And Warren would say, look, this is nothing against Mr. Flew. It, it, no one else, if anyone else was up here, they could do no better uh, than Flew to, to defeat uh, the argument is not to defeat the man, but he clearly, and people there, you know, the audience kind of, you know, wanted to almost help flew out a little bit, you know, like his arguments are so are so poor. But I feel like that was one of the novel takeaways from this debate was Warren framed it under the whole heading of creation versus evolution, mm-hmm. and and he just flew had never, you know, flew's used to talking about the problem of evil. And that's what he presses throughout the entire book. He kind of ignores all of Warren's arguments and just addresses, mm-hmm. you know, Plato's, was it Euthyphro, the, the, the dialogue. That's, that's all he's got is yeah. the problem of evil. So it really, you know, really caught him off guard when Warren framed the debate the way that he did. Um, and Warren used the rules of debate or the, the agreed-upon rules for this particular debate to his advantage uh, they, you know, our side of it, the Churches of Christ, we decided the, the rules that we would go by the terms of the debate and Flew agreed to it. And, and another thing, another advantage that Dr. Warren had is that Flew, as you said, was a celebrity atheist. He had written stuff. He had done several debates that Warren could look at. And while Warren had done several debates, um, they weren't very easily accessed by right. Flew, and I doubt Flew even looked at anything that Warren had written or had spoken on in preparation for the debate. And so he had no idea who he was meeting in debate. He severely underestimated him, and uh, Dr. Warren played David to Flew's Goliath and and oh, yeah. felled the giant. You know, really, is what he did. And I think that's what drew me to the debate in preaching school. You know, when you're a young, you know, a young kid, the the feeling of he he made us proud. You know, that was that was the feeling that I that I took away from that is even now I don't I I always thought, you know, Brother Warren is clearly um, flu superior. But that would not have been the the impression going into the debate Mm -hmm. by by the general public. But um, just how, how proud. He, he made us, I guess, how well he conducted himself in that debate, how well he defended the cause of truth, right? Yeah. Because the, the, one of the things that I highlighted in my book was uh, Warren says to him, you know, for, for someone who claims to not believe in God, he said, you almost seem to be God intoxicated. He said, you write so much about him. You, you, you know, you, you're, the papers that you publish on falsification and the problem of evil, he said, for someone who rejects, denies his existence, you just seem to be intoxicated with God. And Flew says this, and I know this is probably always covered whenever this debate is discussed, but the next time, you know, Flew had a turn to speak, he said something to this effect. He said, Dr. Warren may be certain that I am sobering up from God intoxication, and I shall be uh, speaking and writing considerably less on this subject in the future. And you know, you know anything about debates, you know that is as as clear and close to just an flat out admission of defeat as you will ever get. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's going to get up and say, "Well, you put me, you know, uncle, I yeah. give." But but flu, I remember marking that, circling that in probably five different colors, you know, to, to see he felt the force of those arguments. I'm sobering up uh-huh. from God intoxication. Well, what did yeah. he mean by that? Well, like I said, he clearly felt the force of those arguments hmm. that, that, that Warren was making. Well, this is where I wanted this discussion to go to. Uh, we're not going to settle all the arguments for the existence of God, not even the ones in this book. We just summarized them because I, I wanted to take it in a different direction 
than what people would usually do with this, and that is our brotherhood's reaction to this debate. It was a shot in the arm for us. Uh, we we wanted to. We I've, I feel like the churches of Christ have always prided themselves in being reasonable, and Christians from the atheistic world are constantly being accused of being emotional, mystical. Uh, superstitious, uh, just engaged in fantasy and obsessed with stories and mythology and not being realistic. And here we had a logician, a person who has a PhD in philosophy, toppling by as close to an admission of defeat as we can find, toppling this, this great celebrated atheist and, uh, you know, what I've always heard by people who attended the debate and others who just read the book and heard about it is, you know, Dr. Warren completely humiliated and defeated this atheist. And, um, you know, I guess that's true, but I also think that when we say that, we're missing a bigger picture here. It's like, a lot of us see that as a microcosm of the debates between atheists and Christians. And it's almost like we took too much comfort in that and said, well, there's a couple things. I think we took a lot of comfort from it in, in saying, we won that debate, therefore God exists. <laughs> Number two, and we've already talked about all the other things that were going on around the debate, you know, how he it was underestimated by flu right. and so on. But then I also think we make the mistake of saying we settled this issue in the 1970s. There's no need to address it in new ways going forward. And I've mentioned this on this podcast before. We're still arguing the cosmological, teleological, the moral arguments for the existence of God and not responding to a lot of the new militant atheistic statements that are made that are, you know, Dawkins, you know, for example, has been very successful in convincing millennials and those younger than them and, and those older than them, too, that the God of the Bible, if you think he exists, fine, he's a terrible person. Right. And I haven't seen a whole lot of literature on that subject. There, there are also other arguments to be explored that there's not a whole lot of stuff written on. And we, we have some, I'm not trying to be critical of folks in our brotherhood who do this work. They do great work, but I've, I've been looking to see I've been looking for updates on the Warren... Here's the bottom line. I've been looking for updates on the Warren flu debate, and I'm not finding them. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. But this was 40, almost 45 years ago, and I think we're still repeating the Warren flu debate. Right. I mean, that's your Christian evidences class in the early 2000s. That was my Christian evidences class in the mid-1990s. And I would venture to say it's probably the Christian evidences classes that people are getting, although that's a, that's a really bold statement. I'm sure that doesn't apply everywhere. But in a lot of places, it's probably still the standard textbook. Right. Yeah, their arguments have evolved. You know, I think they saw, and in some ways it's a tribute to our apologists and our, our brethren and others, not just our brethren who debated these, these men, that you know, they saw the arguments that they were putting forth weren't working. You know, and so they had to shift, they had to adapt, they had to find some other way to approach the question. And I don't know, like you say, that our our counter arguments have evolved along with theirs to mm -hmm. to keep up. I think we may be and to some extent we may be answering questions that are no longer being asked. And that's a bad thing. Yeah. That that's a bad thing to in it to feel outdated like that, I guess, to be yeah. putting forth you know, answers that nobody is even thinking about. Yeah, well, that's the criticism that, um, that you almost stated it word for word that I read in um, Kinnaman and, uh, is it Kinnaman and Barna that wrote the book Churchless? Um, 
I may have Barna, Barna may not have been on that, but Kinnaman, David Kinnaman was definitely in on that. And he said, you know, one of the reasons why evangelism is not working and there is a growing population of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, no religion, churchless people, is that we're answering questions nobody is asking. Right. And uh, I, I think listen, that's I true of apologetics and stuff, too. I listened listen to your podcast. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I listened to your that's podcast right. on that. It was excellent. It was a great podcast. Yeah. And, and I want to do, not on this episode necessarily, but, you know, and others going forward, I, w- I want to look into some of these new arguments the atheists are making and explore potential for other evidences for the existence of God. Because I believe with every argument the atheists come up with, however new it is, however fancy it may be, there there is a Christian response right. to it and a strong one because when you have the truth on your side, there's always a response. Right. Um, so there's that little wrinkle in that debate, I, I think it comes with success anytime. When you have a, a good, a great success, um, you tend to rest on your laurels, and I think we've done that a little bit. Although I cannot, I cannot quantify how beneficial this debate was for the church and still is for Christians. However. Flew's admission notwithstanding, he did not see this as much of a defeat as we did because he didn't start believing in God in 1976. Nor should he have, just from one one debate. But a lot of people think, you know, it's settled. And there's that old thing that people say, debates never convince the people making the debates. They're for the people attending the debates. But really... I want to see what you think about the effectiveness of debate, debates then and now, um, because I think it's been the case in almost every debate that people have attended throughout history. Whether you're talking political debates or religious debates, is you know people come with their preconceived notions and they leave with the same preconceived notions. And a lot of times, not necessarily in this one, but in a lot of debates, both sides go home thinking their side won. Right. Um, I believe that debates are beneficial in a way, but what what do you think? Um, I don't know, Drew. I have wrestled with that myself because, you know, growing up, and it's, it's something that I heard um, Wendell Winkler say once, and Brother Winkler said that when he was a young man, you know, a young preaching student, he said that he had almost a, a, a mania, he said, with error, that he was just about obsessed with error and refuting error, correcting error, and so he poured through all these debate books, you know, and he he wanted to know how to refute every false doctrine, and and that's exactly how I felt too, you know, a, as a young man. I don't know if that's just a progression that you go through, and it's never, you know, that you grow out of that, or you know, you want to embrace false doctrine or, or anything. But I guess it's just an attitude. I guess it's a, a perspective because, you know, you get a little bit older and you do wonder, you know, the debates of the 1950s, you know, they would not be effective today. Well, it, it's a different culture. It's a different time. The truth hasn't changed. We know that the truth is inviolate, right? The truth is, is not changing, but our culture is changing and our approach, if we're wise, you know, Paul didn't approach, the Apostle Paul didn't approach the same cultures in the same ways. When he was in Athens among the Athenians, he approached them different than he would what we would call the churched people, you know, the unchurched versus the churched. He approached them in different ways, and I think if we're wise, our approach will have to vary as well. Um, Alexander Campbell, you know, I think was it Alexander Campbell that said that, the, you know, a debate would do one three-day debate would do more good than a year's worth of of preaching and i i think that was the attitude for a good a good long while i think that was i think that was probably true in his case man in the for one thing the preaching preaching was i mean you didn't draw the kind of crowds that a debate could draw when you went to a little country church and preached somewhere 
back in his day, that's that's what he had, and he could go to a do a debate, and his debates were very carefully selected, and they were chosen based on things he he was personally working through, and I think Campbell's debates were monumental in, in that way, um, but the times. They were suitable for the times. I agree. And the audiences were people, I, will, I won't say blank slates because they brought over from Europe or from the colonies or wherever. They, they brought their preconceived notions into it, but they seemed open to hearing a different side. And people did change as a result of Campbell's debates. Whereas I've never, and I'm not saying they're not out there, but I've never heard an atheist heard of an atheist who said, "I started believing in God after the Warren flu debate of 1976." Right, and it, I don't know what point it was in my, you know, uh, preaching career, such as it is, that I, to to a certain degree, to a certain extent, it seems to me that maybe not all debates, but at least some debates, they become counterproductive or. They're counterintuitive, and instead of becoming a search for truth, you see people. Uh, it just it just confirms them even further in what they already believed. And instead of trying to search for the truth, people are trying to dig in and defend a position, and the position becomes bigger than the truth, which is you know cart before the horse or whatever you want to call it. I start out and you know ostensibly we're wanting to find the truth about this matter. I take a position and then for me to admit that maybe my position was not fully correct or it had some weaknesses, I see that it, you know it's a weakness in myself and to admit defeat it's like you're admitting defeat as a person and I know seeing some debates you know in the late 90s maybe mid to late 90s kind of crystallized that idea people were debating um like the role of the holy spirit and you know it became it just became a hobby in our brotherhood that that, Mm -hmm. you know and instead of again uh looking for truth it almost just became i'm digging my heels in and this position you know it's like the person becomes so associated with the position that for them to abandon the position it's like they're giving up a part of themselves Mm -hmm. and so the debate you know, it's over before it even begins because you know how it's going to end and you know where it's going. And you have to wonder, is this still, does it serve the purpose that it was intended to serve? Is it a search for truth or are mm-hmm. we just going to defend preconceived mm-hmm. ideas? And who is that really changing? I read, a really, this was just in the last few days, I read a really wise man that I may or may not be sitting across from right now, but he wrote... He, he wrote that, you know, we don't really change people. He wasn't talking about debates in this context, i.e. you weren't talking about <laughs> them. But you said we don't really change people so much by words. I think you're talking about things we write maybe on, on social media. Yeah. We don't change them by words, We not generally. We change them by relationships, mm-hmm. right? And if I had heard that when I was a young preacher, I would have thought, well, that's, you know, you're, you, that's just soft, Drew. What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. That's, but it's true. And I heard somebody put it better since I wrote that. Um, he, what, what I read was, uh, facts don't change people, friends do. There you go. And look, facts are absolutely essential. It's just the, we're talking about the delivery of facts here. Right. And look, I want to say a few things here for those who may think I, we heaped praise on this debate. So I hope people know that you and I both are big fans sure. of this debate. And I'll say it again, I can't quantify the value that I've gained from reading this debate. Um, But the value that I gained from reading this debate was it helped me learn how to think. Mm -hmm. And um, other debates that I've read have helped me learn how to think. And not so much this debate, but others with atheists teach me, you know, it keeps me from being naive about my faith in this world and how easy it has been for me and teach me what the other side thinks and helps me prepare for that um, and gave me more confidence uh, by bolstering what I already believed and this this debate I think is an exceptional one an exception to the rule I think other debates, and this goes along with what you have been saying, 
have been more polarizing than uniting. Right. And that's the concern is if that's all we do is just lecture and argue and debate, we, we just push the sides further apart. It's the same things happening in our country. It's hard not to draw an analogy to politics because we have seen the two sides get further and further apart. And um, a lot of people are caught in between saying, well, I, you know, I'd like to not be on a side. I'd like to be an individual here right. and think through this. And one thing that debates do is put people in that box of mutual exclusion that um, Warren was trying to talk to Flew about when it came to evolution and creation. Uh, evolution and creation are mutually exclusive. It's either one or the other. But when it comes to people, they're different from that. Right. They're, they're in all kinds of different places. Right. And the only way we can possibly reach them is on a case-by-case basis and learn them and start where they are. It's Philip and the eunuch, right? Uh, what are you reading? I'm in Isaiah. St- let's start here and talk about Jesus. And um, we need to be able to start where people are thinking and talk about Jesus. So I, I, maybe there's more you want to say about that. I want to get to the next thing, but um, I want people to understand that I really love this debate, and I'm glad that it happened, and I believe that Dr. Warren represented Christ and showed the world that Christians are rational and that it's reasonable to believe in God. But I'm also frustrated that we feel that... the you know, I don't know that anybody would ever say this, but it's almost like we feel like the work was finished 45 years ago. And um, meanwhile, these men are called the new atheists. They're coming up with different ways of approaching the problem of evil. And so maybe they're the same old concepts, but they're dressing them up differently and they're having a huge impact on the younger generation. Uh, so I don't know if there's anything else you want to say along that line. Um, I second what you said. The, the book for me, I love the book. It strengthened my faith at, at a time where that kind of appeal to reason was something that I was was very much drawn to, and so it was good for the season that I needed it. Uh, I found, in my, just just personally, just practically speaking, that you know when I would try to imitate that or emulate that in my preaching when I started preaching in 2003, you know, on the heels of having read this book, that when I tried to go out and say and put truths in syllogistic form and say, this is true, this is true, therefore this is true, this is my major premise, this is my minor premise, that's not how you relate to people. And so I think you have to take the truths that you learn and then accommodate them, filter them through different mediums to your audience because syllogisms great though they may be they do not speak to the heart and so that that's something i think Mm -hmm. i I still appreciate the debate so very much and i was sitting here thinking uh to myself you know when my children you know get older my oldest is about to be 13 i have my youngest is six i don't know that i would have them read the warren flu debate i guess it depends really um one of the some of of them may be built like that you know maybe they're yeah it depends they might have a very rational mathematical mind and that would be the right book for that person it it really appealed to me when i was in my early 20s uh now i might read a a book that i have really enjoyed and have read through several times as frank turek's stealing from god and that's a, a a more you know modern book from the last you know few years how atheists have to steal, you know, steal from God to make their arguments. Mm-hmm. And oh, so that's so true. That's yeah. that's a great book. I don't know if anyone listening wants, you know, if you're looking for sort of a modern, you know, maybe a little more readable because it's not in a debate style. It's mm-hmm. uh, Frank Turek's Stealing from God. It's an incredible book. And I thought, you know, that might be what I would want my kids to read yeah. now. You know, I don't know. I guess it will just depend. Yeah. Well, um, before our time is up, and really we, we're not on time limit here, but uh, I've been very excited to get into this next thing we've kind of been saving. So if people tuned us out before now, they're they won't gone. Get, they're they long won't gone. Get it. Do you think anybody's still? <laughs> a few. A few. All right. Um, so when you were 
and I wanted to, I don't know a whole lot about the circumstances, but I believe it was when you were a student, when you were a preaching student, or right. soon thereafter. Just after we had finished, I guess, the book in preaching school, he flew came to Auburn, and I just remember we, we were living in Hoover, Alabama at the time, and I saw that he came to is it the Mises Institute, it's M-I-S-E-S, Mises, I guess, in Auburn, and he spoke. And I thought, well, what a coincidence. So I've just finished you know, this great debate book, and here this is 25 years later, uh, and flu, you know, is in Auburn. And so mm-hmm. I, in true stalker fashion, you know, this was 2001, so I contacted, I reached out to the Mises Institute at Auburn, and I, I guess I was trying to find his address. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know how I got his address. That's what I've been trying to think. I either looked it up, and in those days you could just, you know, Google it and find it, uh, or it's or maybe the Mises Institute gave it to me. I don't know, but I got Flu's address. Long story short, and I sent him a letter as a 23-year-old preaching student. Um, I said, I know that you were in Auburn, Alabama, only a few months ago, and so I, I say War Eagle to you, assuming that you heard that phrase on more than one occasion. I said, I know that you're a busy man, uh, but I just basically asked him for his reflections on that 1976 debate. And I said, you know, and a little bit naive, I guess, I said, but were you pleased with your performance? I said, what would you have done differently, if anything? Uh, What were your impressions of Mr. Warren, including both his performance and your impression of the Church of Christ um, in general? Was anything said by Mr. Warren that you were not anticipating? Did you change your mind concerning any of your positions? Do you believe you changed his mind concerning any of his? And so I don't guess that I was even expecting a response from him, but he did uh, write me back just a few weeks later uh, from and Reading. can you just read the, the whole thing in its sure, entirety? Sure, He wrote me back February the 12th from Reading, England, and he said, Dear Brandon Renfro, when I first read your letter of January the 31st, I was so wrapped up in the job of completing an enormously long final chapter for the book of a debate which I had had in February of 98 in Madison, Wisconsin with a professor William Lane Craig on the same question of the existence of God that I simply failed to notice that you were asking me about my reactions to a debate which occurred before you were born. Uh, He says, I have little memory of that debate and I am not prepared now to reread my copy of the book of that debate. Unlike the more recent Madison debate, it never seemed to me to constitute any sort of challenge. Certainly, I very much liked all the Church of Christ people I met who reminded me of all the good Methodist people among whom I was raised. I was and remain an incompetent debater, and no doubt my performance in 1976 made that very clear. You may be interested to read that what led me to defect from Methodism was that it seemed to me in the later 1930s, as it still does, that the claim that the universe was created and is sustained by a being who is both omnipotent and omniscient, yet at the same time perfectly good, is manifestly incompatible with innumerable obvious facts about the universe around us. Yours, Antony Flew. Wow. All right. So a couple things I want to draw out of that. He's... I'm trying not to get ahead of myself because there's so much in this story, but he he says that it did not constitute a challenge in the way that his debate with William Lane Craig did, which Craig, if our listeners haven't heard, is the foremost theist in debate, at least, alive today. He's an evangelical uh, theist and... Uh, is eminently qualified to debate these guys that and he he takes everybody on and he's very successful in that so I understand that but what we just went over surely shows that it was a challenge but then he he walks that back well he does say that he doesn't remember much about it (laughs) (laughs) and then he does walk it back and say that he was a poor debater right so I don't know really how to read his reflections as if he Maybe he's just... First of all, how amazing is it that he responded to your letter? Oh, I know. I was not even expecting, Drew, a response at all. So it was just kind of gravy to me that he wrote me back at all. It seemed to me at the time that he's still solidified in what he said in 1976 because 
you know, I don't know. That, that's what you try to evaluate is what impact did that debate with Brother Warren make on, on Antony Flew. And I think it had to be whatever impact it was, uh, almost a subconscious uh, impact because he still, you know, that was 1976, the debate. This is 2002, so that's a quarter of a century later. And he's still advancing the same argument that he did in 1976, the problem of evil. How can you say that God is omnipotent and he's all good at the same time? Because if, if so, then there would not be evil in the world. Is God just not powerful enough to stop it? Or maybe he is powerful enough and he just refuses to do it, in which case he's not good. That's, that's the exact same argument that he was putting forth you know, 25 years earlier. And so mm -hmm. you think, well, you know, what impact did that? really have on you and you know because it was still you know five six years later when was it 2008 or so yeah. 2010 somewhere around there where you know flu comes out and says well i'm essentially a deist you know he mm -hmm. does believe in a god not he was clear to say you know not the god of the bible certainly not you know the 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 god of the old testament i don't believe he believed in any you know biblical god but it, as i said sort of a of a deist, um, but you know, I, I don't know how to assess the the impact the the Warren debate had with him, unless maybe it was like I said a cumulative effect because mm -hmm. he he said he was sobering up from God intoxication, but apparently he was not. He continued to have these debates, and you know, finally, and it wasn't um, William Lane Craig, but it was another apologist that finally it was at um, Habermas yeah Gary yeah. Habermas and Abraham uh, was it Var Varghese yeah you know, they, that's right they those are the men that he you know claimed really turned the tide and sort of changed his mind but you know I, I would like to think and maybe it is wishful thinking I don't I don't know that you know how you would even you can't prove it I would like to think that you know brother Warren planted a seed in his mind you know that that maybe opened other doors or maybe later came to fruition because I just remember when I got the letter and and read over it it was just kind of funny to me he said you know I failed to notice you were asking me about my reactions to a debate that occurred before you were born <laughs> so there was a little bit of you know the WC fields you know go yeah. away kid you bother me you know who are you whippersnapper <laughs> to even ask me about this debate you weren't even born you were negative too but what was interesting is on the one hand as you said he claims I have little memory of that debate um, but then he turns around and says it never seemed to me to constitute any sort of challenge now, I don't know what I think about that or maybe I do but uh, we can only guess at the time point. yeah at the time I thought I, I said something to the effect of maybe he just has selective amnesia because he you know Brother Warren took him to the intellectual woodshed that maybe he did just block that from yeah. his, his memory. It was such a complete and thoroughgoing defeat that maybe he just he just blocked it out. But I don't know how, you know, it can claim to have little memory of it and yet what I do know is that it, it wasn't a challenge. I he I, did I still he did so many debates and discussions throughout the states, but I the most memorable sermons that I can remember from my early days are the ones that I bombed really bad. I mean, I have an uncomfortable memory of each and every one of them. They are cataloged, maybe that's just my personality, but they're cataloged away, sitting on a shelf in my brain, ready to pick up any night that I'm having trouble sleeping. So those are some of the things that, that I go over in my mind. So I just doing... This is not fair to Dr. Flew, who can't be here to defend himself, but I think he remembered it. I mean, he's, he's throwing out a lot of information about it in the letter that he says he doesn't remember it in. And I think, I think he remembered that he did poorly in it. He says as much in the letter, which means it could even have meant to him that he did feel some doubts about it. I do think that he was intoxicated with God throughout his whole life. And having been raised in a much more secular environment than, than we are, and having been drawn to philosophy before, before faith, whereas 
Warren was drawn to philosophy after faith. I think that uh, Flew had a chance to dig his heels in on the side against God for most of his life. But then it's a really big thing that he came out in 2008, just a few years before his death, and said, now, you can say, well, it wasn't the God of the Bible, whatever. The man who debated against God his whole life came out and said, there is a God. Right. And he pointed to DNA and things discovered through genetics and basically came back to the argument from design. And that's what convinced him, which says something about repeating that argument. You know, earlier I said we need some new arguments. We do not need to leave the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments behind. They're still the most effective arguments. So I'm rambling here a bit, but I'm trying to get into this man's words and try to read past that into his mindset. And I think you put it best in saying that maybe it had a part of a cumulative effect because he came across many Christians, Warren being among them, Habermas and Craig being two others and uh, the other fellow that you mentioned. These, these are all formidable minds when it comes to the existence of God. And if just think if it had been the other way. If he had squashed every theist he met in debate, he would not have come out in 2008 and said there is a God. Right. And so, at the very least, we can say that about Dr. Warren's contribution. And I'll say this, you know, and on behalf of Flew, um, he was always self-deprecating. I think you have to be willing to laugh at yourself and and just see things that are absurd for for what they are, but. I never knew what to, quite what to make of his sentence that he wrote. He's, I was and remain an incompetent debater, <laughs> and no doubt my performance in 1976 made that very clear. I don't know if, if he felt like I had asked a leading question with some of my statements, if he kind of read through that and thought, well, I'm just a doofus like you think I am. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's what he was saying. Well, you obviously think I'm incompetent, so I'll just, I'll just tell you that I am. But I, I think Flew, I, I think Flew was really giving us a little bit of insight into he he really did he didn't feel like debating at least not um oral debates were Mm -hmm. his strong suit he probably preferred he did more written debates Mm -hmm. but to his credit this is what flu flu said and if you read his his the later books you know his the book there is a god that he uh, was it that's the one with um bar jesus isn't it that Mm -hmm. he um, he said, look, he said, I've been, I'm being vilified by my fellow atheists, most of whom have never read a thing that I've written. He said, but I have always tried my best to follow the truth wherever it leads, right? And so we talked earlier about how debates for some just only just really serve to solidify them in whatever positions they already held. That's not how Flew was to his credit, you know, even if it if he couldn't see the arguments that to us seemed so clear, we we wanted him to be convinced by argument X, argument Y, and he ends up being convinced by argument Z. That that's really mm-hmm. academic. Right. He he said, you know, look, I see all this evidence of life within the cell, and I see all the intricate design within the human cell. And he says, look and, and DNA, like you said, he said, and obviously this, you know, DNA is a code. It's a very mm-hmm. complex code that could not have evolved, and where there is design, there must be a designer. And so he just says, I'm following the evidence, right? Well, that's something you won't, those are the kind of admissions, you know, because his fellow atheist just said, well, now he's senile, right? He's about to die, and so he's trying to get all his, his ducks in a row. But no, that, that wasn't really the case at all in terms of his intellectual capacities he still re- retained his his intellect his faculties he just said i'm following the evidence right well mm-hmm. you know would to god that richard dawkins and and harris and some of these new atheists that you mentioned would do that today you know flew i will say he had a certain intellectual integrity and and i think that led him to you know uh later on say, i do believe in god mm-hmm. right even if he didn't go as far as maybe we would have hoped that he would, I will say to his credit that he was willing to follow the evidence where he saw that it led. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's a great stopping place for this, and I appreciate you sharing it. Now you can see, if you've been listening this far into it, why Brandon's the best person to talk about this, because you're the only person I know who had correspondence with Anthony Flew, and uh, that that's just really amazing to me, and I appreciate you sharing it with us, and I hope we can come up with some other good topics to talk about again, because... I enjoy talking with you all the time and uh, enjoy doing this on the podcast. So thanks thanks a lot for, for doing this today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Drew. And let me say this. I almost didn't want to do this podcast, and I don't – your podcast is so good, and I've told you before, you know, how much I admire and respect you. And I felt like I can't go on Drew's podcast because it's just going to bring his podcast down. So my apologies <laughs> no. to anyone who, who did not enjoy this podcast. But, Drew, I, I appreciate you so very much. To me, you're one of the true thinkers uh, among us, and I appreciate your humble heart. I appreciate your knowledge and your love for God. And so it was an honor to me just for you to ask me to be on here, and I just wanted to express my appreciation to you for that. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well. We're gonna we're gonna try to do this again soon, and uh, I don't know what's on the next episode and why margins. It's summertime, so I'm a little off schedule, but we are going to continue doing it. And uh, Brandon, I hope you're a part of that future going forward. So stay with us, keep listening to Wide Margins.